0: Welcome to this next episode of 2020 Baby with me, Pamela Douglas and with my dear colleague and friend from the Durham um, Infancy and uh, Sleep Centre Professor Helen Ball Welcome to you Helen and thank you so much for being willing to talk with me today You're very welcome, it's nice to chat So today we're going to talk about sleeping babies safely and enjoying the nights as best we can. I have had the privilege of um, knowing Helen over really I think six or seven years now and Helen has done um, possums the honour of presenting keynote talks at a number of conferences over that period of time. And then in um, more recent years, I've had again the honour of collaborating with Helen and the team at the Durham Infancy and Sleep Centre on Sleep, Baby and You, which is an adaptation of the Possum's um, Baby and Toddler Sleep Program for the UK context. It's been a great pleasure, Um, having the opportunity to get to know um, Helen and indeed her family a little. Most recently in a trip in 2018, March 2018, to um, Durham where Helen was holding an infancy sleep conference. So Helen, I wondered if you'd mind giving us a brief history really of your professional life. And, um, and then just talking to what matters to you most about your work. What is it that um, gets uh, you fired up about your career as, as a researcher? Okay.
1: Um, well, let's think about how I got started in this field then. I, um, I did my undergraduate degree in biology And then as a consequence of taking a few undergraduate modules in anthropology, I went to the States to pursue a master's and a Ph.D. in biological anthropology. And what I was interested at the time in was um, monkeys, primates. And I did my Ph.D. studying monkeys, Hmm. uh, rhesus macaques, on an island off of the coast of Puerto Rico, which was fabulous. It was, you know, a great life to spend two years chasing monkeys around on a tropical island. <laughs> um, but after I had uh, written up my PhD and then started applying for academic jobs and got hired as a as a permanent as a, to a permanent academic post at Durham back in the UK, um, and started at the same time having my own family, it became patently clear that primatology in Puerto Rico and motherhood and academia in Durham, UK weren't that compatible um, and that I was going to have to figure out um, a research um, career in something that I could do a little bit closer to home. And that was when I decided to switch to studying mother-baby sleep. And that Mm. switch was really inspired Um, by Professor James McKenna, um, who had been a primatologist and had started his own sleep lab in the United States studying mother-baby sleep. And I looked at what he was doing and I thought about the training that he'd received and that I'd received. And I thought, nobody's doing this stuff in the UK. And I have all the skills that he has, so I could do it too. And that would make my life so much easier and I was already of course, interested in what was happening with mums and babies because I had my own babies um, so mm. that was sort of what propelled me into that space was the need to be able to combine family and career in the northeast of England, where there were no monkeys.
0: Well, and how fortunate we all are that you, <laughs> that you did this. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So I'm sure it, it involved a lot more angst and soul searching and anxiety than it sounds like it did now, looking back on it 26, 28 years ago. But um, yes, it, it seemed like it now. It seems like it all makes sense and it just fell into place. Um, I think it was probably a much more difficult transition at the time. Um, but I've blocked all of that out of my memory now.
0: <laughs> That's right. Um, well, so,
1: so what I, what I wanted to do in those early days, um, having looked at the research that Jim was doing and seeing the sort of response from the medical establishment to Jim's involvement in infant sleep research and what was an anthropologist doing studying all of this and et cetera, et cetera, um, was, to, was to demonstrate that there was stuff about what happens in families at night, that the medical research world really wasn't accessing, really didn't understand what was going on, but that an anthropologist could kind of unravel and unpick and help to make sense of, and therefore contribute in some way to helping families um, get better support, better information, research that was a value to them for the, the issues that they were dealing with. And that was what sort of spurred me on into this into this area.
0: Hmm. Thank you. You know, I think it would be appropriate to say that that over the years you've become the world's leading um, researcher in infant sleep. And I wonder if we look back over the years before we look forward what do you feel are the most important things that have come out of the work that you've been doing?
1: Um, some of the things that I'm, I've am i been particularly pleased about, happy about, um, has been to understand um, how parents manage the, the conflict really between um, their baby's sleep and their own sleep and how they use... Um, bed sharing or sleep sharing as a sort of uh, tool um, to align their sleep needs with their baby's nighttime feeding needs etc so revealing the close relationship the really strong relationship that existed between breastfeeding and bed sharing was one of the first things that we did Um, and that was in an era when bed sharing was really uh, frowned upon Mm. and parents were told not to do it at all and it became it was very important to me to um, to document the reasons parents were engaging in bed sharing um, what benefits it was bringing them that they articulated Um, and then having kind of understood from our conversations with parents about why they were bed sharing to look at that in a objective way with videos um, and actigraphy to understand what was going on for parents and for babies in terms of feed frequency and sustaining breastfeeding and, and uh, whether it was affecting their sleep in certain ways, Um, to be able to properly understand the phenomenon of, of nighttime bed sharing, um, which led us to, you know, A series of of randomized trials in the hospital that I had never imagined that I would ever um, end up doing but which demonstrated how the proximity between mums and babies at night really affects the ways in which mums and babies um, communicate at night, understand mums understand their baby's cues babies are able to alert their mums to their feeding needs and just helps in the initiation of breastfeeding in a way that isn't possible even when babies are in standalone bassinets at the side of their mum's bed. That was all quite a a, a real revelation and a a learning journey for me.
0: Mm, And and indeed a profound contribution, I'd argue, to the, the well-being of women and their babies around the world, really. Yeah, so Helen, if we were to look into the future from here what are the things that you were still hoping you might achieve in the years to come as as an infant sleep researcher are there still particular issues that you're passionate about addressing that that await us to hear about
1: well I think things are gradually moving in a direction that I'm You know, I would like to see things going in. Um, But what I'm really keen to see before I retire is the conversation changing. And I think you share this sort of passion to see the conversation around infant sleep changing um, to normalizing the sleep of breastfed babies uh, for parents to be um, well prepared to expect, you know, to know what to expect. And for us to have moved away from this idea of the good comatose baby, who you know sleeps for lengthy periods, and you know, um, so it's a, so what I what I'd like to see is us changing expectations really, in, amongst the general public and amongst the um, amongst practitioners about how we talk about infant sleep, about the information parents receive about infant sleep before they have a baby, and then while they're going through it, all and um, providing support for dealing with all of that.
0: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Because the the whole issue around, well, sleep and interrupted nights but also sleep and safety is such a source of anxiety and distress really, isn't it, for, Mm -hmm. for families? If we were to focus a little bit here now on the issue of, sudden infant death syndrome sudden unexpected infant death mm-hmm. this is this is a kind of potential nightmare that parents find themselves really engaged in once they've had a baby it you know the the, the fear really of the baby dying in mm-hmm. in sleep is is just a a terrible thing for parents and and so the whole issue around how to sleep baby safely is so weighted, isn't it, for families. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder if I could yeah. hand over to you to, to talk to us about your thoughts as I, as I address this, this area of great anxiety for families. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so um, the, the history of kind of how SIDS has been um, tackled, I suppose, or sudden unexpected deaths in infancy has been tackled over the course of the last 20 years is is really interesting um, but it has some legacies that we need to be aware of and you know if we go back 20 years to kind of the the very early 90s the SIDS rates all around the world were much 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 higher than they are now so um, you know it was something like one and a half to two babies in a thousand
0: hmm. were
1: dying. And nowadays, and certainly in the UK, the rates are down to somewhere between 0.2 and 0.3 per thousand. Um, so, you know, the, the, the rates have, have dropped dramatically. But the the problem is that we still don't know what causes babies to die suddenly and unexpectedly. If we did it would cease to be uh, an unexplained death. So we'd know know what the cause was and Hmm. we'd be able to explain it. Um, So in order to try to reduce those deaths, epidemiologists have had to try to work out what was associated with being a baby who died versus being a baby who didn't die. So what were, what were the things that parents were doing or what were the characteristics of the babies um, that made them vulnerable versus those babies who weren't? And one of the first things that emerged from the case control studies was this issue of the sleep position. So babies were four times, those, those babies who died were four times more likely to be on their front than they were on their back. So the, the first real kind of big initiative to reduce SIDS was putting babies on their backs. And, you know, the SIDS rates declined dramatically in the years after the back to sleep campaigns. Um, and it was a simple intervention. Parents didn't have a lot of reasons to say they didn't want to put their babies on their backs. It made sense, especially if it prevented their babies from dying. We don't know why still. We still don't know why the, the supine position is safer. There are hypotheses about it, but nobody's ever kind of demonstrated one explanation is is, is kind of um, a fundamental explanation for why. Mm. Um, and then pe- people started looking for other um, similar sorts of magic bullets, if you like, things that they could tell parents to do that would eliminate the rest of the, the SIDS cases. And so several things have emerged over the years, um, non, non quite as dramatic as the back to sleep, um, but this included keeping babies smoke-free, so cigarette smoke, exposure during pregnancy and afterwards um, was was associated with an increased risk Um, sleeping in a room alone is associated with an increased risk Um, not being breastfed is associated with an increased risk and those have all got kind of clear data not as many case control studies as the sleep position one but you know the multiple case control studies for each of those things Hmm. and then there's a whole bunch of um of, uh, of things that are related to temperature and wrapping and soft surfaces uh, that people have looked at in slightly different ways in different studies. So it's it's difficult to say exactly what it is about some of these things, whether it's the external room temperature, whether it's too many layers on the baby, whether it's soft bedding that can um, insulate around the baby's head and stop it losing heat, all of these kinds of issues. But there's certainly something around temperature soft bedding over wrapping so this is why babies are encouraged to sleep in a clear flat space with nothing you know no loose blankets that can cover their heads no cot bumpers all of that kind of thing
0: mm.
1: and then there was bed sharing and bed sharing emerged during these case control studies as a potential risk or being associated with an increased risk and so people thought that the best way to tackle that was to then tell parents not to bedshare in the same way as they had told parents not to put their babies on their fronts. And the difficulty arose with that when it became clear that parents didn't want to or weren't happy just trying to eliminate bedsharing. Um, just saying it didn't just just saying don't do it didn't work. People didn't stop doing it and. Um, and what became clear over time from our research and others was that parents are invested in behaviors like bed sharing for lots of different reasons. Hmm. And the, the kind of the, the simple um, don't do something approach wasn't working. It doesn't work for bed sharing. It doesn't work for smoking. It doesn't work for, for encouraging people to breastfeed. Um, So we had to think of other strategies to deal with it.
0: Mm, We're really Um, dealing with complex systems, aren't we? mm -hmm, Yeah,
1: yeah. Complex behaviours for which there are both costs and benefits
0: Mm. that
1: play out in different ways, in different families, in different contexts. You know, it's become clear over the years that the context in which bed sharing is happening makes a huge difference as to whether it's it's a benefit to the family or it's a potential risk to the baby. Mm. And in some cases, of course, it can be both. It can be a risk to the baby, yet it's a benefit to the family as well. So they're willing to take the risk. Um, so, so it's a difficult conversation to have with, with parents, and it's been a difficult conversation to have kind of at a national policy level as well, mm. because, of course, different... Different organisations have got different interests in that conversation and want the outcome to be in a different place.
0: So Helen, in Australia, there's been a trend in my professional lifetime towards risk minimisation when it comes to safe infant sleep advice. Could I ask you to talk to that and to whether that's been the case in the UK and perhaps the US? I'm interested to hear your your. Perspectives on that. Mm-hmm. Yes,
1: I, um, I think we began talking about the concept of risk minimization around the, the start of the 2000s when it began to become clear um, that what we call uh, risk elimination um, wasn't working for things like bed sharing, particularly bed sharing was what I, I was uh, focused on. Um, and I remember writing a paper with um, one of my colleagues, an American anthropologist called Lane Volpe, um, where we, we kind of argued um, that for, from a bed sharing point of view, risk minimization was going to be a more successful, effective sort of strategy um, for dealing with bed-sharing SIDS deaths than risk elimination was was being. Hmm. Um, And after that, um, things changed fairly quickly in the UK. It was 2014 when I served on the um, National Institute for Health and Care Excellence panel that reviewed the evidence about co-sleeping and SIDS in the UK. Well, it reviewed the evidence internationally, but it made recommendations for how health professionals should discuss bed sharing and co-sleeping mm. with families in the UK. Mm. Um, the recommendation was that we should follow a, a risk minimization approach, which meant discussing with families the pros and cons for their specific circumstances, and allowing them—not you know, allowing because they make their own minds up without mm. our permission—but encouraging them to make an informed choice, knowing you know all of the details about the pros and cons for their situation. Um, so that's been that's been guide the guidance to health professionals here since 2014. But it wasn't being widely implemented um, until 2019, um, we were invited. So my... It's
0: not so long um, ago.
1: No, not really. My my basis organisation, which provides information to parents, was invited to collaborate with the Lullaby Trust, who are the UK SIDS organizations, organization, Um, UNICEF Baby Friendly, who are kind of the key um, breastfeeding um, support uh, accreditation program in the UK maternity hospitals, and Public Health England. And we all got together and created new um, national leaflets and guidance for health professionals and parents that explained what a risk minimization approach meant that it involved discussing bed sharing, not just simply telling parents not to do it. Hmm. And it involved discussing how you might arrange your bed and yourselves um, in a way that minimizes the risks or hazards that we know about. Um, and making sure that parents knew which things to avoid, like the sofa sharing, et cetera, uh, that were the most hazardous. Um and that was where, very very positively received i have to say um we got lots of positive feedback from both health professionals and parents that this this was a much more um user friendly approach i suppose um than the the previous approach which had just been to say never bed share. Mm, mm. and i think i think you've got a sim in queensland definitely you've got a similar kind of um strategy but i think some parts of australia still have a bit of a risk elimination kind of um tendency i looked at i looked at the um the guidance from the different states earlier this year when i was doing a talk for the uh, academy of uh, breastfeeding medicine which was being held in australia Mm. um and it seems i think south australia still has, that that is not happy with a risk minimization approach. So I think they still take a a risk elimination approach. And that's what they do in the US. It's still a risk elimination approach. It still says never bed share. Um, And that's what paediatricians are recommended to tell parents. But I think they've softened a little bit in in recent versions of their guidance um, to say that they acknowledge that breastfeed is bed share and that some parents choose to bed share but they still say you know our advice is not to but i think they might be gradually sort of realizing that they need to meet people where they are rather than having some kind of unattainable ideal um
0: because of the risk of unintended outcomes right mm -hmm, mm
1: mm-hmm
0: yeah yeah Mm.
1: so i i i wouldn't be surprised to see the U.S. shifting its position a little more as, as the the next round of guidance from the AAP comes out,
0: mm. Mm. which I
1: think is towards the end of this year. Mm-hmm. We've just recently gone through another uh, nice review um, and I saw the draft guidelines recently and they haven't changed their position. They're still advocating for informed choice.
0: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. This is the NH- NHS, really. NHS, as a, as a yeah. position. Mm. Well, I wanted to ask you, Helen, about a range of concerns that parents will often bring to us in the clinic.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I maybe before I jump into these particular um, questions, I should give you opportunity just to talk a little bit more about Basis and also the fabulous website resource that BASIS offers online. Could you tell us just a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So BASIS is the baby sleep information source and we it's a project that the um, Durham Infancy and Sleep Centre run as kind of a a way to make our knowledge accessible to parents and health professionals. So, you know, we've kind of amassed all of this academic research and knowledge about the research that's done on infant sleep around the world. And it felt as though it was important to make that available for other people, um, not keep it to ourselves. So that was what what prompted us to create the website in the first place. We were getting, you know, lots of questions from both health professionals and parents when they found out what we did um, for research uh, that we thought should just be publicly available. So um, we talk about Normal infant sleep development. We talk about cots and sleep safety. We talk about the kind of anthropological explanations for why babies need contact and comfort, and frequent feeding, and you know all of the things that that we know new babies kind of are born expecting to have happen to them, and then what the consequences of all of that mean for parents in negotiating that first year of life, um, and what the research has said about, you know, different aspects of sleep and nighttime care that parents might want information on. So that's what we try to um, make available on basis. Um, We've been going, well, we, we got the funding to do it in 2010. We spent 2011 writing it all, and we launched it in 2012. So it's nearly 10 years old now. Um, and we keep updating it periodically.
0: Yes, and it's a, a an excellent resource that I refer parents to all the time. Um, it's 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 uh, you know one one part that I particularly enjoy in it, Helen, is is the gallery of images of families mm-hmm. bed sharing in the myriad ways that families do, but. More broadly, it's a terrific resource for people to take a look at um, and for health professionals to use with their, their patients.
1: Well, one of the reasons that we created that gallery was um, there was a um, an article. It, it, actually, it was when the new NICE guidance came out, I think, um, around 2014, um, there was a commentary in the British Medical Journal about it and they illustrated it with a picture of a mum and a baby bed sharing. And it was the most awful picture of bed sharing you could imagine because the baby was face down on a pillow. Um, and so I instantly wrote <laughs> the medical journal, British mm. Medical Journal and said, if you're going to you know, write a positive story about the new NICE guidance, around bed sharing and informed choice. Could you please illustrate it with something that illustrates safe bed sharing or safer bed sharing mm. than a baby face down on a pillow? Because that seems to undermine <laughs> the message that you're <laughs> giving out. So, so they did, they changed the picture. But they, they actually didn't find it very easy to find a picture of um, a safer setup for bed sharing. And it made us realize that, that people... Um, might not see images of of normal bed sharing very much, and how to um, how to, how how a mum and a baby kind of arrange themselves in the bed, and you know how the mum makes this C position and curls up round the baby and puts the baby flat on the mattress and away from the pillows and all of that kind of thing. So um, we thought that um, having some images available for people to use in articles and um leaflets for parents and whatever they needed to use them for really would be a good idea so one of our supporters actually knew a photographer professional photographer and persuaded them to come and just you know if we could get parents in the lab who were willing to be photographed he came and photographed them for free so that was how that all came about
0: yes fantastic it's a wonderful gift to families i think so thanks helen so I'd like to put to you questions that I um, will commonly um, be asked in the clinic. Can we start mm-hmm. with formula-fed bubbies? So mm-hmm. there's the predominantly formula-fed or exclusively formula-fed baby or the baby who's receiving some formula. What about formula and bed sharing? This
1: is This is a really good question that we have tried to address and we've gotten some data about but I think we're the only research team that has ever looked at what's happening with formula fed babies and mum formula feeding mums and bed sharing so i'm not c- comfortable yet saying that there's a there's a definitive answer to this question i don't yeah. think there's enough robust evidence but in the study that we did, and we need to remember that this study only—it included lots and lots of breastfeeding mums, because breastfeeding mums bedshare a lot. But formula feeding mums tend not to volunteer for bed sharing studies, for whatever reason. And so we had ten mums who had, who were formula feeding, who came into the lab to take part in this particular study.
0: And was that um, entirely formula or mixed feeding?
1: No, so this is is an issue. So these were mums, a combination of mums who had breastfed but now were no longer breastfeeding, Mm -hmm. and mums who had never breastfed. Mm -hmm. And we saw a difference between these. So there were probably about five of each. And we saw a difference between these two groups in that the ones who had previously breastfed bedshared the way the breastfeeding mums bedshared. They had that instinctive um, uh, um, behavior of curling up around their babies, putting their babies flat on the bed, etc. Whereas for the mums who would never breastfed, they put their babies on the pillows or between the pillows. So if there were two parents in the bed, they were between the parents' pillows at face height. And if they were sleeping by themselves with the baby, they were propped up on a pillow next to the mum. So it, it, it seemed from that very small bit of data that they didn't have the same instinctive urge to put their baby flat on the mattress at their breast height. And, you know, that's perfectly understandable because if they're not, feeding their baby at the breast, it wouldn't seem instinctive to put your baby down at breast height. Um, So they put their babies up next to their faces. Um, But because it's such a small number, I don't know how generalizable that is. I don't know whether all mums who have previously breastfed will automatically sleep like a breastfeeder. And I don't know whether all mums who have never breastfed will always put their baby up on a on a pillow or you know not think about putting the baby flat. So one of the things that um we wanted to do in in producing this this new these new leaflets that we produced with the Lullaby Trust and UNICEF was to illustrate um what bed sharing looks like amongst those people who do it the most, as in the breastfeeding bed sharing mums. So we illustrated this picture with the baby down at breast height, et cetera, in the hope that mums who don't know what that looks like will emulate that when they decide in the middle of the night that bed sharing is the only way they're going to settle this baby and get some sleep. Hmm. Um, But what nobody can tell us at the moment, because nobody's done this piece of research, is whether you can teach a mum who's never breastfed to sleep with their baby like a breastfeeding mum does.
0: Hmm. Well, so we
1: comp- So we provide that information. We encourage formula feeding mums who who don't necessarily instinctively bed share in this way. We encourage them to do it. But I don't know. I've never been able to do a study where we video mums that we have given that information to to see if they sustain it. In the same way that breastfeeding mums do, or whether in the middle of the night you know they move their baby or they turn their backs or you know something happens that makes it less safe mm. Mm. so I think for formula feeding mums, yep. we can only raise their awareness, really. Um, I don't think we can tell them that it's that it you know, yeah, I don't know, it's difficult,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, because some advice, of course is categorical that um formula fed babies Mm -hmm. and 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 it's not clear whether this is a baby who receives any formula or a baby who's receiving only formula but the advice is formula fed Mm -hmm. babies should not share a sleep surface Mm -hmm. with the mother or with the parents what do you think given that we don't have evidence to guide us how do we manage this as clinicians I can tell you um, what I do in a bit, but I'm interested to hear hear your thoughts. Mm-hmm. So I think it's you know if if we're if our
1: goal is for parents to be able to make informed choices about these things, we have to explain to the parents what we do and what we don't know, and then it's it's their choice, their decision. Um, so you know it, if if they feel as though the bed sharing is providing them with a really important bonding opportunity with their baby, an opportunity to get to know their baby's cues, to be responsive in the night. And that outweighs for them any small chance um, of increased SIDS then. You know, I think that's completely their choice to make. And likewise, if they feel as though they, they don't have those breastfeeding hormones that kind of Make you arouse quite frequently because you need you feel the need to feed to feed your baby and you're attuned to your baby's movement because you sleep with it regularly. Um, if they you know if they feel as though they're they're lacking that that a breastfeeding mom might have um, and don't feel as though it's safe to to fit, sleep with their baby, then I think you know that's also their informed choice. Um, And we have to support them whichever decision they choose to make.
0: Mm. So we've got the research to show that breastfeeding is protective against seeds, but we don't actually have data other than perhaps your team's work around instinctive positioning or lack thereof. We don't Mm -hmm. actually have data to show that bed sharing with a formula-fed baby, is riskier than bed sharing with an exclusively breastfed baby. I mean, we have the overall data around breastfeeding being protective, but if we're breaking it down and mm-hmm. looking at bed sharing, we have nothing to guide us. Have I got that right, Helen?
1: There was one. Um, there was one publication in 2006, I think, one of Bob Carpenter's publications. Where he tried to extrapolate. So it was a model, it wasn't actual data on numbers of bed, of bed sharing deaths amongst formula and breastfed babies. It was a model extrapolating from some data that he had that produced a series of curves um, showing babies at different ages and their risk of SIDS by whether they were breastfed and formula fed and bed shared or didn't bed share. And my memory is that this model suggested that formula fed babies bed sharing were 10 times more increased risk or an increased, a tenfold increased risk compared to um, breastfed babies not bed sharing. So I think breastfed babies not bed sharing. And bed sharing, it was like um, twice the risk, but it was twice the risk of of a very, very minute amount, like one in 10,000. But then for formula-fed babies, not bed sharing, it was five times. And for formula-fed babies, bed sharing, it was 10 times. So it was a difference between sort of two in 10,000 and 10 in 10,000 for the comparison of breastfed and formula-fed um, and that's the only uh, study that I'm aware of that has attempted to quantify the difference in bed-sharing risk for breastfed and formula-fed babies. But there are, there are a lots, lots of um, questions around the data from that study because he imputed uh. lots of missing variables. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's one of those studies that gets picked apart quite
0: a lot. Mm. Well, thank you. And and so um, parents will also ask me often about the advice that they hear that if they are going to share a sleep surface, the baby should not be slept between um, between the parents. And I must say um, that in that wonderful gallery of images on the basis site, of course, we see many Bubbies... Um, uh, sleeping there between the parents so could you um share your thoughts about that
1: yes um so in the uk we don't give guidance about whether the baby should or shouldn't be between the parents um the guidance is mostly in terms of the kind of safe arrangement of the bed making sure that the bed bed is is away from walls and furniture so that there are no gaps that the baby could f- slide down basically and hang themselves because mm. their babe, their bodies fit through gaps and then their heads don't. Mm. Um, so so having the baby in the middle of the bed between two parents m- can be safer if the edges of the bed are, are a hazard, if there are things there that the baby might, might slip between, but... Um, People worry about dads and whether dads um, sleep more deeply and are aware of where the babies are. And I have to say from our videos, there are some dads who are absolutely in tune with everything that goes on with the mum and the baby in the bed. So they arouse every time the mum and the baby do. They check out what's going on. Sometimes they respond to the baby before the mom does. So not all dads are heavy sleepers. Um, But there were some who turned their backs and zonked out and didn't interact with the mums and babies during the course of the night. So when parents ask me this question, what I usually say is, you know whether your partner's a heavy sleeper or a light sleeper. You know whether he arouses and looks and, and checks out what's going on if you're awake with the baby or doesn't. So if you are worried that he's a heavier sleeper and might not be aware of the baby, make sure you put yourself between him and the baby. But if you're happy, um, that he's as as attuned to the baby as you are, and some dads sleep with baby, the baby by themselves and let the moms go and you know, have a night's sleep or half a night's sleep or whatever. So some dads are very competent bedsharers. Um, then I think it's, you know, they have to make that decision themselves. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all kind of answer to this one either. I think no, it depends on the, on the parents.
0: And there's not really data to guide us, is what you're saying. The concept of a heavy Mm-mm. sleeper is not something that... that we, we don't have data to suggest that, that a heavy sleeper is going to increase the risk of SIDS, really, do mm-hmm. we? So...
1: No, yep. no, or roll on the baby or anything that's like that. It's, that's yeah.
0: It. And And then...
1: There fi- are anecdotal stories, but that's where a lot of these concerns come from or from anecdotal stories, which may or may not include information that, that doesn't get passed on as part of those stories.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then um, finally, um, obesity. Are you able to speak to that, Helen?
1: So there was one study done in the states um, many years ago um, that attempted to quantify the the risk of bed sharing with an obese mother, um, and it found that there was an increased risk um, above a certain BMI. And I'm afraid I can't remember what that BMI was off the top of my head. Um, but the the concept basically is if you're if you're so. Old, obese that you're unaware of your body periphery. So I think if if you are unaware of where your, you know, whether your baby is is pressed against your body, against the periphery of your body, if you've not got sufficient yeah. sensation um to know that that your arm or your, your breast or whatever it might be against your baby's face, then that's a good reason to to avoid bed sharing. Um, but there's, again there's only you know there's only this one study um, and otherwise it's it's anecdotal information
0: and there'd be many women who do um, fall into the, the the category of obesity from a BMI perspective who wouldn't um, fit into that category of having mm-hmm. difficulty knowing if you like the, the knowing, boundaries yeah. of their body yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well Helen um th- Thank you again. Is there anything else that, that you would like to add to wrap up our conversation here? Well, I say tonight for me, but of course it's in the morning <laughs> for you and you got up so early for us and I'm grateful for that. But is there anything else you, you'd like to add before we close?
1: Well, I think um, I think probably it would be a good idea to just reiterate what the known hazards are with bed sharing that we should make sure that everybody is familiar with. Um, So the things that we always mention uh, as, as being clear, um, clear indicators of an increased risk for a baby when bed sharing or co sleeping are sleeping with a baby on a sofa, um, sleeping with a baby. If you're a smoker sleeping with a baby, if you've consumed drugs or alcohol, um, and sleeping with a, a low birth weight or premature baby. All of those have been shown in multiple studies to in, be associated with an increased risk. So those are the times when we've got we need to be extra cautious and careful.
0: Well, um, thank you so much, Helen, for your time, and um, I hope that you're going to move forward now into a delightful day. And uh, I'm moving on into a live network hour actually with, with our NDC practitioners next. Oh, wow. That yeah. sounds exciting. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's been wonderful to have this conversation with you and I think it's, it's a conversation that will be um, highly valued by both the parents who are interested in the possums or the NDC work and also our health professionals. So thanks, thanks again, Helen. You're very welcome. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you, and have a lovely day. Well, thanks for listening. It's been great to have your company. And remember to check out the non-profit website, possumsonline.com, for lots of free resources and programs and the publications that form the evidence base to neuroprotective developmental care or the Possum's programs. As together... We grow joy in early life. I hope you tune in again soon. Bye for now.